This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett and joining me for the third time, I think it's Dr. Chris Nunn of the University of Greenwich. Hi, Chris. How are you? I'm well, thank you. How are you? I'm very good. And it's good to see you again. We are not quite where we were planning to record. We were we were planning to use your facilities again for the screening room at the University of Greenwich. But combination of uh, Brexit debates and childcare issues (laughs) have meant we're recording uh, at Chris's home instead, which is, is very nice of you to to have us here. The, right. nice the to have primitive culture world tour continues. It's always nice yeah, to yeah. try out a new venue. Um, and it's great. You've got, you know, unsurprisingly for a film lecturer, uh, Chris has a great uh, setup for showing movies at home, much better than what I have at my house, certainly. Uh, so we've got the projector fired up. Uh, we're going to have a little screening. And the reason is uh, what we are watching for our sins today is Star Trek Nemesis. Now, I don't know about you, Chris, this is not a film that I have ever enjoyed watching i don't think of all the star trek films there's only two uh and i can give you a guess as to to what the other one is (laughs) that i have never enjoyed uh you you know some of the more ropey ones i've had good experiences and bad Mm -hmm. experiences uh, but you know at least occasionally i've managed to sit down and sit through them and and have a good time this is one of the ones that so far has never failed to disappoint me but i wanted to take another look at it i know there are many um star trek fans on the network and elsewhere who have been saying this is a film that needs another chance, you know, we should be less harsh on it. Uh, And so I was looking for a kind of way to approach Nemesis. And I thought, well, as far as I'm concerned, all the things that I don't like about this film, I tend to uh, pin at the door of Stuart Baird, the director. And I was aware that he'd directed a couple of films prior to Nemesis. As far as I know, he hasn't directed any films since Nemesis. Uh, Make of that what you will. Um, (laughs) Primarily known as an editor, Stuart Baird. So I just thought what we'd do is we'd take a look at some of his uh, his two previous works. We'd have a look at Nemesis with fresh eyes and we'd see whether that brings anything fresh to the table uh, and what we make of it. But before we um, go on to watch the film... Give me a little bit of a sense of uh, your history with this film. We, we, do you have as a sort of negative a reaction to it, as negative a history with it as I do? I don't think I do, but I remember I remember going to the cinema to watch it when I was thirteen. I think is when it came out. Mm-hmm. So I was sort of front row in quite a small screen in the Odeon in Brighton. You know, film has this 
you know, sometimes a very physical memory of where you were and what you yeah, were doing. Yeah, yeah. And, and bizarrely, I've got a thing about being in the front row of a film. Sometimes right, okay. I think that just brings the action of whatever's going on right into your face. I watched the Coen Brothers' No Country for Old Men in the front row. Mm-hmm. And that's just, oh my God, you know, what an experience. And so maybe Nemesis, the culmination of me being a bit younger, but also... Um, it's got a, it's got a lot going on in it, and so maybe front row it made an impression. But I don't know. Since then, so obviously there's two parts, right? There's thirteen year old <laughs> Star Trek fan who I think even liked Insurrection, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, because uh, they just grab phaser rifles and go off, you know. And you're like, okay, but then there's the part of me that's gone on to spend a life studying film, and then you come back to these these kind of works and go, ah, okay. <laughs> You know, it's, uh, maybe maybe what I enjoyed as a teenager is, is not actually passing muster mm. in terms of how much I love Star Trek The Next Generation, how much I love those characters, um, how much I think science fiction television in general owes to that show, you know, and, and kind of where did it end up, um, I think, is why... You might be right, it deserves a second look, maybe. Maybe we've all been too harsh. But there are certain moments and certain sequences that I think even watching it again, uh, I'm probably not going to forgive. Well, we'll, <laughs> we'll find out one way or another. <laughs> but, I mean, one reason, actually, that I was quite keen to to screen the film, uh, you know, at least on your living room wall, if, if not in a, in a cinema, is I. it's the only Star Trek film, I think, that I don't remember seeing for the first time. And I know that I had a really bad experience with Insurrection. Insurrection really uh, was a kind of visceral disappointment to me, that film in the cinema. As I say, I've since gone back and I have had, you know, times where I watched it and found it quite charming, other times where I watched it and found it pretty disappointing again. Um, I had lost interest in Enterprise after maybe six or seven episodes and kind of stopped watching it. It was also, it was a time of life. I think it was around the time... I was on my gap year, I was kind of travelling, I was back and forth, I was going off to university, all this kind of stuff. So I suppose the the sort of space that Star Trek had in my life was kind of at its at its low point, maybe, at that time. And I just cannot remember going to see this film in cinema, and I wonder whether I decided to skip it. I mean, I think there was the word among Star Trek fans, at least, was that this was not a great film. Uh, I find it surprising if I didn't go and see it, but I have no memory of seeing this film in the cinema. So either it was such a horrific experience I've blanked it out, or I literally, uh, like, I was done by that point. The combination of, I've mentioned this before, it was Riker's joystick in Insurrection really kind of killed something in me as a Star Trek fan. It took many years to to rekindle. Uh, and, you know, fortunately now, obviously, I'm presenting a Star Trek podcast. I, I've got my, my Star Trek mojo back, yeah, clearly. Yeah. Uh, and I'm willing to forgive some of these missteps to a certain extent. But Nemesis is a film that every time I have seen it, which, as I say, has always been on, on DVD or Blu-ray or whatever, I have found something unforgivable about it. And I think it is, it's a combination of things. I mean, partly I was never happy with the, spoiler alert, <laughs> you know, the ending, the, the killing off of data. I never yeah. liked that. But also I just feel it's a film where you can feel the director coming in, this director who, you know, famously unfamiliar with the franchise, refused to watch any episodes of Next Gen, maybe watched a couple of Next Gen films, thought Geordie was an alien, thought LeVar Burton was called Laverne, uh, you know, had no interest in who any of these characters were or, or any of the relationships between them or any of the things that to us make Star Trek sort of special in a Mm. sense. Um, 
a kind of journeyman action guy who puts in sequences like that dune buggy yes. section which i just find what, unforgettable what a waste of time but, yes. <laughs> but we'll know. see we'll see whether watching it again with the benefit of seeing these other films and we have both gone and watched the the stuart bed of now um we've seen his two his two other films uh, executive decision which is a kind of um what do you suppose a sort of action Hi. thriller, yeah. Con Air style? Yeah, plane sort of thing on a plane. Yeah. A group of um, like special forces operatives have to take over a plane from a load of terrorists led by David Suchet. Uh, David Suchet. Fantastic, yeah. amazing yeah. casting in yeah. that film. I mean, that film, I think, you know, g- goes quite a long way on the strength of its cast mm. and its kind of ludicrous uh, storyline, set yeah, pieces, yeah. etc. Uh, and then US Marshals, which was a kind of. Um, totally unnecessary sequel to The Fugitive, yeah. uh, a spin-off for the Tommy Lee Jones character from The Fugitive. Um, so one of the things we might come on to talk a bit about later is, you know, why on the basis of these two films might Stuart Baird have been hired for Nemesis? What was the sort of thought process going on there? And also ultimately, of course, whether it works out or not, you know, I think, you could, I mean, no sort of surprises what we're likely to to come down saying but it'll be interesting (laughs) to see we're going to give this film a proper go we're going to sit here we're going to watch it we're going to you know try one last time (laughs) to get on board with nemesis um you know particularly given that nemesis is going to become i think an important jumping off point Mm. um when we do have the picard show coming out soon i mean obviously a lot of time will have passed uh obviously i think people who are hoping we're going to see the whole next gen crew back may well be disappointed from yeah. what we've heard about that show yeah absolutely. but at the same time that is the last that we saw of picard yeah. that is the kind of that that's the kind of latest point in the sort of geopolitics before this you know romulan uh catastrophe in, 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 the, in the abrams yeah. films which obviously is going to feed into picard but if, yeah and, it's, it's got to be a kind of jumping off point of some kind it will and especially for you know um star trek is obviously doing quite a good job now of attracting new fans mm. to the franchise not necessarily through abrams stuff but it certainly is through discovery um because cbs all access keep renewing it you know so that they've got no reason to renew it if it's not making the money and they're just expanding the franchise mm. now if you're bringing new fans in then they're going to want to know you know, they, they will probably know who Picard is because he's that kind of folklore character, a bit like Kirk. Mm. Um, but they're going to want to know uh, who he is, where he's been, what he's been up to. And that will take people back to this film. <laughs> it's, you know, there is no avoiding it. You know? <laughs> One way or another. Well, as you said, there's no avoiding it. No. Uh, we're going to venture beyond the neutral zone yeah. uh, into the deepest, darkest recesses of Romulan space and see what we make of this film on yeah. our, you know, whatever it might be, fourth, fifth, whatever yeah. uh, viewing. And we'll be back with you uh, on the other side of the neutral zone. Absolutely.
Well, that was quite an experience. Um, definitely, I would say it makes a difference seeing it on a bigger screen, you know, yeah. bigger than my regular TV at home anyway. I wouldn't say this is likely to become one of my top Star Trek films anytime soon. I think that's fair. But at the same time, I'd say of the various times I've seen this film, I definitely enjoyed it more that time than than any time previously. Mm. And the last time I'd seen it, I don't know about you, was, I think... Uh, three years ago when I did the kind of complete works uh, uh-huh. which we were doing on Trek FM the, from there to here rewatch um, and I kind of got to this point in my rewatch and I was slightly dreading it and I you know didn't particularly enjoy it when, yeah, when no. I came to it well, maybe watching it on its own helps in some ways rather than watching it at the end of you know next gen or even the end of next gen DS9 Voyager that whole kind of 90s track um I mean, obviously there was Enterprise going on at the same time, but, you know, really this is, I mean, this is the kind of latest point in mm. universe that we get to, yeah. in a sense. This is sort of the the end, this is the bow uh, on the end of <laughs> kind of the Star Trek that we grew up on. And I think that's one of the reasons that, for a lot of people, it is such a kind of um, problematic film. Maybe just seeing it on its own as its own thing, helps a little bit i don't know what do yeah you i think that's fair i think when you consider it as like a swan song for the next generation cast you're looking for an undiscovered country mm. and you don't get it like not even boy do you not get yeah, it yeah absolutely not <laughs> yeah. even not even close really and that i suppose is the um the problem when you consider it in that context mm. of like okay we've watched all of the next gen we love these characters because, as we said before, uh, or maybe we didn't say it actually, but Baird isn't here about the characters. You know, no, this is not sure. this yeah. is not what this film is about. Um, so, therefore, on its own, as a standalone piece, especially when you look at Baird's other films, can it be a sort of self-contained, entertaining piece? Mm. Um, and the answer to that is maybe I don't. <laughs> yeah, well, I have to say, I mean, the the things that I that I knew I didn't like about this film were, you, you know, I never liked the sequence with the kind of dune buggy, the Argo on mm. that planet. I always thought that was a bit cheap and 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 random. Uh, I was never that keen on the the scorpion ship flying through the scimitar and all of that. Again, it sort of felt a bit sort of cheap action. Um, actually, what I felt watching it this time was that the the sort of first maybe quarter i guess of the film there are quite a lot of nice character moments a lot of the charm that we do associate with next gen is in there it's in there right at the beginning um and when the film gets kind of darker and it gets more serious it does hold together it does have a sort of tone it has a mood it's just that the mood is so unremittingly bleak and unpleasant and unenjoyable to watch. This is sort of what I felt. It's just a really depressing film to watch. And that whole last, you know, that battle that seems to go on forever at the end mm. uh, is really just a bit of an ordeal. And it is dramatic, you know, and you do get great acting out of Patrick Stewart. You get a lot of kind of, you know, it's it's moving. It is potentially moving. That ending, you know, Data dying is is sad, you know, I don't know, but it doesn't, it, something about it, it just does for me, it doesn't, it doesn't feel very Star Trek. I suppose that's the thing. And, and I guess there's two questions there. You know, one, is this any good as a film? But two, is this any good as a Star Trek film? And for me, it's more the second one where it slightly falls apart. It's just, it's just so far from what I want for that crew mm. at that point. Um, and that's not to say that it's not great when Star Trek does unexpected things. I mean, 
you know, Wrath of Khan, yep. obviously it was a bit of a, a departure in many ways, not necessarily what people were expecting. At the Voyage Home, totally yeah. off-the-wall decision yeah. for a Star Trek movie. Yeah. I love that film. But I suppose what you've got in both those cases is you've got an emphasis on character. And this film, it, it, it is interested in the characters to some extent. I think mm. the script is is making efforts to go there. I did feel watching it this time, and I don't know whether it's just having, you know, you get it's got more of your complete attention somehow, it's on a bigger screen and everything. Um, some of those kind of themes, some of those relationships, you know, between Picard and Shinzon, and, and even the stuff with B4, which I was sort of thought was a bit hokey, it does sort of come through. There are themes there, there is a kind mm. of shape to the script. I do wonder whether part of it is just that it's been so hacked away at. I mean, we've yeah. seen all the deleted scenes that were filmed and weren't included in the film. Um, the, you know, the original script apparently was much, much longer. There were many, many scenes that they didn't even shoot. Mm. Uh, and John Logan obviously came at it with quite, you know, quite strong ideas about what he wanted to do. And I just sort of wonder how much of that translates to the finished product in a way in the same way as with insurrection you know michael pillar famously had all these ideas about what he wanted to do with that film and by the time you got to the actual final shooting script something had happened to his Mm. vision and it kind of wasn't really there anymore i don't know whether you know i'd love to read john logan's like original first draft or whatever and see what that film might have been but i just feel like so much of it it's kind of skimming from one thing to the next and it's kind of um I mean, Stuart Baird famously is an editor. It sort of feels mm. not not literally over-edited, but th- that idea of like editing as as a an instance of like cutting things down, and absolutely kind of trying to speed them up. Yeah, and almost cut for because um, there are so many different ways you can cut a film, mm. but almost cut for expediency. Yeah, like exactly. I've just got to get through this. Um, that if there was a kind of three-hour script. Um, and they said, you know, that Nicholas Mayer kind of might have been brought on board at one point, but he mm. wanted to change the script. So Logan's script was kept as this kind of, no, 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 we can't touch this. But then in the process of production mm. and key post-production, uh, all this stuff disappeared. Yeah. And so you think, okay, well, that means the script was never sacred, yeah. which means someone else could have come here and had a go and done something kind of remarkably different. But it is a very curious way of moving through. It's methodical. It's, okay, what plot points do we need? And maybe a bit of what will be exciting, not from a Star Trek point of view, and certainly not from a character point of view, but from a, what if I've just made an action film and and here's my audience and they're going to go to the cinema and they're going to love this June buggy sequence. Mm. Or, you know, especially Captain Picard driving a dune buggy. I don't know why that's remotely entertaining, but you tend to imagine, you know... I sort of got the impression Patrick Stewart was quite keen on that. Yes, exactly, <laughs> yeah, right. It's an element of kind of wish fulfilment or like, you know, having a great day out there. Yeah. But I think it's interesting. I mean, we tend to assume, and I certainly went into this viewing really very much in the way I set up this conversation, very much assuming that Stuart Baird is the kind of, the, the kind of villain of this piece, mm. you know, coming in and wrecking star trek and I, I i do think there is a degree of truth in that i do wonder whether in some ways you know i think john logan had obviously come up with some interesting ideas 
you know, there is something there. I do think John Logan in his other work, you know, has produced very good scripts. Mm-hmm. You know, he's obviously, he came in, I mean, he's, he probably won an Oscar by this point, hasn't he? I yes, I think yeah. so. I mean, yeah, he's, yeah, he's I like a heavyweight writer. And I suppose that's like the it. thing, um, you know, thinking about the next-gen films, it's not just a case of bringing in a director who doesn't know the franchise. Mm. I mean, you're bringing in John Logan, who is a Star Trek fan. He does know the franchise but mm. as a fan. But he's not uh, Michael Piller. He's not Branagh Braga. Braga. Yeah. He's, he's not one of these guys who's been working up with mm. these characters for years. He's coming in very much as an outsider. Mm. Um, and you've also got this split where you've got the new writer and you've got the new director, uh, and they're almost coming at it from totally different, different angles. angles whereas you know when you had Nick Meyer with the Wrath of Khan I mean mm. famously he completely rewrote it and what he wanted to do with this one as you say he wanted to rewrite it himself mm. so then at least you'd have a director who was directing a script that they understood yeah. whereas I think part of the problem with Stuart Baird you're right there's this sense of expediency and one of the things that still bothers me about this film you know even on, on, on this watch through is that there's it's, it's almost like it's not just that the character there are these character scenes missing and we know that because we've seen them and there's great work and great you know performances and nice kind of character interplay that just isn't in the film it's also just like the most basic things like the shots the sort of establishing shots the shots that tell you kind of where you are or what's going on I mean that wedding scene I only realised when I was watching some of the um, you know the interviews and the special features and so on in preparation for this uh, that's meant to take place on Earth in Alaska, mm. I believe. Now, I always assumed it took place on the holodeck because I, I, the next thing we know, they're all on the bridge they're all, the they're all in uniform yeah. and it feels like no time has passed. And there are several points in the film where there's a jump from one scene to the next. And actually, if you think about it rationally, quite some period of time must have passed. Mm. But the film does nothing to indicate that. There's no sense of time and there's no sense of real geography either I don't think I mean they talk about going to Romulus and crossing the neutral zone and then there's the uh, whatever that patch is where the communications yeah. don't work and the big battle takes place but I think none of the groundwork is there to even just take like the few seconds that is necessary mm. to establish that and funnily enough it reminded me a little bit talking to Stuart Baird I mean Stuart Baird famously known as an editor I mean who edited some fantastic mm-hmm. uh Films, you know, he's obviously knows what he's doing as an editor. But um, the film that he worked on immediately before this one, before Nemesis, in this capacity as an editor, was he worked on the first Tomb Raider film. And the only thing that made me think of that is that, and apparently he was brought in to sort of fix some problems with it. I think he's seen in the industry as a bit of a fixer. He's this kind of quick uh, editor you can bring in and sort things out. That Tomb Raider film, funnily enough, was the first time that I went to the cinema and watched a film and felt like I couldn't follow the editing. Mm. And I remember going as a teenager, I went to the Empire Leicester Square, I was quite looking forward to it. I was, you know, like, like you going to see Nemesis in the cinema. Uh, probably not quite to the same extent, but, you know, I played all the Tomb Raider games. Yeah. I was quite excited to see this film. Uh, and I, you know, again, <laughs> was disappointed by that one too. But one of the things that struck me was there was some, a scene fairly early on and it was an action scene. And the cuts were so fast and it was moving around the space so much, I literally lost... I felt like I didn't know where in the room Angelina Jolie was supposed to be, if Mm. you know what I mean. And I'd never experienced that in a film before. Um, And I I watched it again recently to see if that was still the case. And I I didn't find that a problem. So I feel like my brain is obviously caught up in the intervening Mm. years or decades. Um, But I remember I was talking to a friend who said when they first, uh, first started making films, like silent films and so on, all the kind of the, the structure of the way it would be shot was 
taken to a stage place so people would sort of have to enter stage left and stage yeah. right and kind of clear the, the shot and so on. And it took people a while to just get used to the kind of conventions of, of cinema in a way. Um, so anyway, it just, it just struck me that like with Tomb Raider, I guess Stuart Baird was obviously cutting edge, you know, he was doing cutting edge well, stuff, which today seems quite straightforward. Yeah. But back then it was, was bewildering. You know? It's funny. It's, there's two, there's two things to say about this. The first is that you've got this av- idea of average shot length, mm-hmm. um, which in your kind of 1920s, 1930s films, the average shot uh, lasted about 13 seconds. Um, and now lasts, I think, three and a half. Oh my god! <laughs> so if you think about, yeah, uh, and there are some, there are some kind of structural reasons for this. One is what you mentioned about characters entering, and it's actually about the number of characters in a frame. Mm. Um, so that's part of it. So actually, we had to hold the shot longer because we had to kind of understand who's in the frame mm. and, and do a bit of looking around. The audience had to look around. Um, now you have this kind of heavily reduced average shot length. And that is because um, of these kind of uh, frenetic action scenes. And that's the second thing that I'll mention that might be of interest for people to look up is this notion of chaos cinema, which is this idea that we don't actually need to know as an audience and now where we are. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's not the same as, and Star Trek famously has always avoided this. I would say it even avoids this in the Abrams uh, mm. uh, uh, reboot movies. I don't think it ever gets frenetic enough that it's chaos, that you don't quite know where you are. But if you think of kind of action franchises like The Fast and Furious um, uh, and, and films of that ilk, you can just cut, cut, cut. Mm. <laughs> uh, and the audience uh, doesn't need to know where they are because it's much more about this... Uh, visceral feeling and it um, means the editor doesn't have to follow their own i mean there are kind of rules of the trade aren't there right. like you know yeah. not crossing the line cutting on movement all these do you mm-hmm. know what i mean there are yeah. kind of expectations about how editing okay. is going to work and if yeah. you are doing something like that then it seems to me that you're sort of throwing those rules out, out the window, the window. Yeah. and it, it's not quite the same with this i mean stuart baird did not i don't actually know who edited this film he didn't edit it him, himself mm. I would say with all his films, you know, having watched his other two films as well this week, that all of them have a slight feel to me of being slightly over-edited in that the, the pace feels a bit too fast at times, if you know what I mean. And it does feel like he is an impatient director. Mm. Like he can't wait to get onto the next bit. And therefore it's not just cutting out these kind of nice character scenes, but it is literally like failing to provide the kind of groundwork failing to set the scene in a sense sometimes consider what you said about here and the idea of geography right which Mm. is actually quite easily fixed and has been fixed in the past uh in god knows how many films i'm trying to think if star trek has ever done it actually off the top of my head titles telling us where we are yeah actually abrams films do that sorry abrams do star dates and locations uh certainly in that first one okay so now we know where we are and then compare Nemesis, which doesn't bother with that at all, to Baird's first film, you know. and Executive decision. Yeah, and an executive yeah. decision. I don't know how many titles we see in the first sort of six or seven minutes. You're right. <laughs> uh, we are in Chechnya. We are in Washington, D.C. We yeah. are on a plane. Fly- Do you know? And you're like, fuck. You know, <laughs> you're running around trying to scramble. Yeah. Um, but you're being given the titles. So... On the one hand, 
he's doing that kind of hand-holding to the audience, saying, this is where we are. But on the other hand, that moves so quickly that you still can't keep up. Mm. Um, now here, in this film, I don't think it moves so quickly that if you had those intertitles, it or just, you know, and it would have been a nice, neat editing trick just to help with that kind of plotting. I don't know that you even... I mean, yeah, that's. I suppose that's one way of doing it. To, to my mind, the way that Star Trek would have done it more conventionally is you would see... If there's a shift from one planet to another, you'd see movement between... Do you know yeah, what I mean? Or like if they up, are or... in Alaska, they beam up. They go yeah. back. You'd see some kind... Yeah. Or you'd see the shuttle going back to the ship. Mm. You'd see something for the sake of a second or two that indicates that we're moving from one place to another. I mean, you know, to the extent that you know, traditionally in Star Trek, you always have the established... I mean, I'm talking about TV Star Trek. Yeah, yeah. You always have the establishing shot, you know, uh, of the ship or of the space station yeah. or whatever that tells you or you're going planet. back to yeah. the... You know, you, you don't... Yeah, but exactly, you don't... Say there are two stories going on in different places. You don't cut back from the, the stuff going on on some planet just to the interior of the ship. You usually mm. have a, a sort of establishing shot of the outside of the ship. And, you know, similarly, if you're on the planet, you have the, the map painting uh, before you show anything on the planet. Yeah. Now, maybe that seems old-fashioned and it seems kind of uh, a little bit paint-by-numbers or whatever, but it's uh, their conventions that kind of establish, okay, this is where we're going, this is where, you know, this is the kind of setup. this is mm. what's... Um, and maybe it's that idea of having to translate that kind of storytelling which works in TV and especially works in TV, whereas you said you've got an A plot and a B plot that mm. we've got to follow, um, translating that language to film. And you go, okay, well, does that work in the cinema? Mm. Uh, does that work for a kind of... We, our theory is that we're getting a wider audience in the cinema, mm. that someone might just pop along. Uh, obviously, with Nemesis, that didn't work as the only Star Trek film not to finish top of the box office in the weekend it opened they all popped along to made in manhattan right? yeah, yeah exactly so you know and i don't blame them no i honest. don't either I mean, not to say that made in manhattan is necessarily a better film than star trek nemesis no but at least it ends on a you know a happy note yeah. at least you're going to kind of leave the cinema with a smile on your face maybe or i don't know I've no 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 fair enough, but yeah. do you know what i mean like there's something about the kind of enjoyment of going to the cinema that i think is lacking in this film and i think for me I totally get they didn't want another insurrection. Insurrection was too light. It was kind of a bit empty. They yeah. wanted something a bit a bit deeper. But I think the thing is, I mean, I think the reason that First Contact works so well as a next-gen film, and there are flaws with that film. I mean, that Ooh. film is sort of chaotic in some ways. It's a completely bonkers film. But at the same time, I think what First Contact manages to combine is this quite dark, quite serious, quite dramatic storyline with a real sense of fun, a real sense of humour that actually runs throughout the film, kind of permeates the whole film. Mm. Whereas this film, it feels like there's the kind of character interplay, there are moments of humour. The humour is better than the insurrection, to be honest, when it's there. Yeah. But it's all in the first, what, half hour at the yeah, most, at the I'd most. say. And then, and then, then after gone. that, it gets really, really serious and mm. bleak. It's not just dark, it's actually quite bleak, this mm. film. And I just think there's no fun in there. Yeah. The only fun you get is the kind of action beats. And for me, that's not really, that's not the fun that I'm looking for in a Star Trek film, no. if you know what I mean. And, it, and I have some of the same reservations with the Abrams films. I mean, the other film that I alluded to earlier that, is, is, that I've never had a good experience with uh, is Into Darkness, which I think has some of the same, <laughs> some of the same problems. Um, but uh, I think where the, where the um, Kelvinverse films work, say Star Trek Beyond, mm. 
The fun doesn't just come from the Beastie Boys bit where everything explodes, although yeah. that is fun, and yeah. I, you know, I did enjoy that. But it also comes from, you know, the interactions, the humour, the mm. kind of the 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 lightness of it in yeah. some ways, uh, even within quite a dark story. Potentially, which you is have that, you know? which is about having an understanding of character mm. and the way in which Star Trek has always managed to. Um, Star Trek has always managed to use its characters because there are moments in, you know, there are TV episodes that have quite dark and heavy themes mm-hmm. uh, from the original series right through. I uh, think of like City on the Edge of Forever. Well, we're not getting out of that one uh, lightly, mm-hmm. but that episode is not, not without humour at all. In fact, it's very funny in parts. It's not a depressing um, experience. No, to watch not it. at all. You know, there's romance, there's drama, there's kind of high stakes, and yet it has this kind of, uh, you, you know, quite a tough ending. If yeah, you know what I mean. absolutely. But at the same time, it's not. Maybe it's partly the length of it. I mean, it's quite a long film, Nemesis. It's about yeah. two hours long, and it just feels to me like that. The the last act is goes on and on and on it just gets yeah. worse and worse and worse i don't mean worse dramatically i don't mean worse cinematically really i just mean it gets more it and goes more on, on. Bleak yeah and grim um a bit like lord a bit like the end of lord of the rings <laughs> you're, well, see, you're seeing in the cinema going when does this film actually end well the funny thing uh, is though the other i mean aside from made in manhattan the other film that this was going up against famously and one reason that nemesis may have, have failed to draw in the punters was the two towers mm. now weirdly you could say the two towers is a film that is well, a massively you know bloated because it's about three hours long yeah and b most of it is concerned with one battle that sort of goes on forever ever yeah but I didn't ever feel watching The Two Towers, and I haven't seen it for many years, uh, it, 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 that didn't bother me. Do no. you know what I mean? Yeah, that, I'm with that you seemed completely. to fit with yeah. the structure of the film. It seemed to fit. Whereas with this one, the, the film, I think Nemesis, it does sort of have a shape. It does feel like it's all of a whole, but it's a slightly weird shape. Yeah. Um, and it's not, for me anyway, ultimately a very satisfying one, certainly towards the end. But again, I don't know whether that's Stuart Baird's fault. I don't know whether that's john logan's script i don't know whether it's that you know if john logan wrote a three-hour script that was in proportion mm. and at some point Stuart baird or, or, or someone working with him decided which bits were more interesting which bits were going to stay you know it does feel like none of the action beats have been taken out yeah uh, you know particularly in that kind of climactic battle um no, but the character bits are like, all gone. Exactly, but the character bits, as we know, are all gone because we, cause we can so see them in three, the deleted uh, scenes. Three know? deleted scenes at the end. Yeah. Um, including the new first officer. I could do without that one. Yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, and, <laughs> but yeah. and of course, we had yeah, right. Stephen Culp on, on yes. Enterprise yeah, anyway. Yeah. 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 Um, and why, why? I mean, you don't need it, so I'm, no. I'm not. But yeah, there's the crusher scene. Yeah. Um, and there's, oh, what's the other scene at the end there? Packing up uh, Data's quarters. Oh, Data's quarters, yeah, you know. Um, and um, there's the nice scene between Picard and Data earlier on where they're yeah. talking about um, time and, you know, growing older and sort of these sort of mm. themes that are in the film, I suppose. Which, um, again, the themes, um, the themes just seem to have been stripped out. I mean, it's, mm. you know, like... There are lots. People draw lots of parallels in this film to the Wrath of Khan, understandably, mm. because you have this kind of uh, villain who's hell bent on, on on kind of destroying Picard. Uh, by the end of the film, it's much more about vengeance than it is about needing his DNA. Mm. Um, 
this idea that a character sacrifices themselves, but that actually their memory is still contained within another person. Mm. So I can see where people draw those parallels from, but you don't come away from the Wrath of Khan feeling kind of bereft of, what, joy, certainly, because Mm. it's a kind of meditation on life. Maybe Nemesis is just a meditation on death. I mean, I haven't really thought about it that way. That's kind of what it feels Uh, like. It's a bit like a sort of... Funeral dirge. Funereal, but it's also, I suppose, you know, you've got a character who's literally terminally ill, who's the villain, and, yeah. you, you know, is, is, I don't know, you've got Picard who's feeling old and like everyone's leaving and, you know, things have passed him by. I mean, these are quite depressing themes in themselves. Uh, but I think, so, so, so partly all of, all of those themes are quite depressing inherently, but there is also the fact that I think you're right, it's hard to exactly put a finger on what is this film about is it mm. about identity is it about this question that keeps coming it appears to be about this question of is are Shinzon and Picard the same person yeah, what does right. it mean to have a clone this idea of like who am yeah. I who's this other person because you've got that with Picard and Shinzon you've got that with Data and B4 yeah. I'm not totally convinced that that really sort of goes anywhere no. ultimately it does have this kind of relentless theme of kind of impending death and destruction and kind of a, a, a misery one way or another. Um, but I, I suppose in The Wrath of Khan, I think it, it works. I mean, obviously The Wrath of Khan works. And it's true, that is quite a bleak film in some ways, mm. or, or at least a, a dark film in some ways. Mm. But there is hope in there. There is kind of... Um, there's also the fact that, you know, you have that quite beautiful funeral scene. Mm-hmm. I mean, a funeral is a way of, like... Um, sort of coping with grief in yeah. a way and I don't feel I know we get that scene where they're all drinking wine or whatever which in itself seems weird because it's like a wake that happens five minutes after the person's died yeah, which is sure. slightly yeah, yeah. feels slightly you know they're, they're all still covered in blood and the ship's in pieces and they're, yeah. they're cracking open the wine it feels feels to me like that there there should again have been a bit of a passage of time maybe they somewhere. were just all glad that production was ending maybe who knows no. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Brett Spine is off screen you know, yeah absolutely yeah he's he's, he's there <laughs> he's and you know what finally done and you know Stuart Baird is no also more. knocking them back yeah, yeah he's like finally certainly. I'm off this thing almost certainly um, definitely. but it does it does just sort of feel like there's um, I think with the Wrath of Khan they found a way of of making it so that you know you Yes, you feel heartbroken at Spock's death, but at the same time, A, it feels totally dramatically motivated and dramatically it works. Like, it, it gets... It, it, it does everything it's setting out to do, which I'm not sure that Data's death in this film does to the same degree. It, there is kind of groundwork laid for it. It is kind of thematically linked to some of the stuff that's going on. And to me, it made sense, actually. One thing that made sense of it for the first time watching it this time around, because I always sort of thought... It's a bit like, it, it's like this swap, you know, data for Picard, one of them's going to go back. because so that's the way they set it up with that, mm. that transporter thing. Um, it made sense to me thinking of it as data. This isn't just the fact that data's a selfless and decent person. Because people always say with this film, oh, this shows how far data's come and so on. And I always sort of thought, well, mm. I think data would always have done that. Yeah, isn't that exactly, that's just yeah. data's personality. You do the right thing. That's the right thing to do. But it made me think, I suppose, the fact that they set up data as the new first officer it kind of, it makes a little bit more sense thinking about it that way, that, you know, he's the first officer who's protecting his captain mm. and that that is a, is a slightly different relationship between the two of them than the kind of mentor-mentee relationship yeah. that we've seen before. But then there's this weird thing where at the end of the film, Data's died, that's all awful, everyone's focused on Data. And then the emotional weight of the film has to be all about Picard and Riker and Riker leaving mm. and Picard, 
you know, telling Riker how much he means, you know, this sort of moment of how much they mean to each other. And that's quite weird in itself because, again, it's like you've built all this stuff towards Data dying and then that's not even really the kind of... Way to the film. The way to the film mm. in the way that when Spock dies, it's all about Spock dying. There's nothing else going on by that point, really. I mean, you know, there's Kirk's reaction to it mm. and so on, but that is absolutely a Spock dying and then, you you know, you get Leonard Nimoy doing the voiceover at the end and it's all, it's all about Spock. This film is kind of weird because it, on some levels it feels like it's about data. You know, you've got the data clone, you've got this kind of data storyline. But really it's a film about Picard, I suppose. Mm. And it's always that question in the next-gen films, you know, how do you make data seem more central to, to what's going on? You know, yeah. Brent Spiner came up with a story for this one. It was obviously yeah. kind of, you know, it was, it was his and John Logan's idea. But how do you kind of balance that? How do you, how do you do this ensemble story when you've got two characters who are kind of sort of your leads? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. And Patrick Stewart obviously is like officially the lead, but Brent Spiner is the sort of unofficial lead. And I think with the original series, you know, with, with Lennon Nimoy, that, that, that worked more easily. It was less problematic somehow. Mm. Um, I suppose because of that friendship, I don't know. I think with all the next-gen films, there's sort of a question like, what's Data's storyline? Because Brent Spiner has to be invested in it to, to yeah. want to do the film. Um, and in some ways, that's, that's often where the stories of those films get into trouble. Yeah, I think it's interesting if you think about that kind of the classical narrative and, you know, sort of Joseph Campbell and the monomyth mm. and the hero's journey, um, which Hollywood grabbed at some point and just went, this is how we must make films. However, and while I don't always agree with that at all, uh, you do see that that kind of circular, you know, a hero comes full circle mm. and learns something new about themselves in the process. Mm. That arc is immensely satisfying still, however it's presented. And again, I think Hollywood films do a terrible job of, of always making it look and feel the same. Um, but here we, you know, Kirk in The Wrath of Khan as our hero, not to say that Spock is not important, but Kirk is the character who's got to learn something and he learns something about sacrifice and he learns that he can't cheat his way out of everything. And we get that at the end. Now here, Picard's got a lot to learn about growing old, about losing his family, which I believe is what he says in the, in the wedding sequence, but we don't get to the end of the film and get the sense that Picard's gone on that journey. And I think there's something that's almost there. Mm. And it, it may be that it's... I can't remember if, if any of the deleted scenes... I have a feeling one of them maybe does sort of touch on this, you know, this this thing about Picard as a young man. And we do know, mm. you know, we know from the episode Tapestry oh, that Picard yeah. was a bit of a rogue in his youth and so yeah. on. And there is that scene in there with Picard and Beverly where, you know, he, he's sort of saying, do you remember this guy? You know, he was a bit of a joker, basically. Yeah, yeah. And obviously that's what's presumably feeding into like the dune buggy stuff which is feeding mm -hmm. into him smashing the ship you know basically ramming the scimitar at the end this idea that picard has this side of him that is kind of uh rebellious and kind of unpredictable and kind of the the, the anti-picard almost mm. i feel like it's difficult because it's one thing to say in tapestry okay a long long time ago picard was like this and it's it's another thing for him to say is this really a part of who he is now? Do you know what I mean? Because yeah, Picard absolutely. is so identified, I mean, less so in the movies, but certainly in the TV series and as a kind of uh, iconic character. 
with this kind of rational, calm, measured yeah. attitude. And even in this film, he's the one saying, we're here as diplomats, we have to be patient, we have to kind of uh, do things in a certain way. Um, you know, he's he's willing to, not to trust Shinzong, because he's sort of suspecting that he's willing to kind of go through the motions of that process and so on, um, you know, compared to Worf and Riker and people like that who are kind of much more... Gung-ho, um, gung exactly, yeah. gung-ho and kind of more, more sort of action-oriented and anticipating the big Act 3, you know, that's coming around the corner. Yeah. Uh, Picard is in his sort of thoughtful, philosophical mode. So I find that, I don't know, for me, again, that never quite, it never quite sells that either. In the same way as, again, in Insurrection, you sort of have the same thing of this sort of younger element of Picard. Mm. It feels like the, the film's always trying to recapture Picard's youth that we never saw. Mm. Whereas actually the original series movies are the making opposite. Kirk old yeah. and they're upset that, you know, they're looking at what does it mean for Kirk to get older mm. and how does that sort of damage him? How does that complicate him as a character? Mm. This character who is so youthful, you know, if you watch the original series, who's this young, uh, charismatic, uh, energetic guy. What does it mean for that guy to sort of slow down like everyone does? I feel like with Picard, you don't, really get that you there's a sort of nod to that uh but then it always ends up going back in the opposite direction it always ends up going you know maybe this is just patrick stewart's sex and shooting memo it's his kind of yeah, yeah. i don't i don't want picard to be this boring diplomat and it'll be interesting to see of course with the new picard series yeah, what we end up with. you know picard in his i don't know what how old he is by this point because i think picard's meant to be older than patrick stewart yeah even, well yeah so, so, so pr- pretty well on in years uh, is he going to be cracking open the phaser rifles or, you know, is he, is he finally going to yeah. accept, okay, this, maybe this is who this character is and we're going to sort of uh, stick to the more sort of thoughtful stuff. I don't know. We'll see. But I think it's a sort of interesting... With, with all the next-gen movies, there's this kind of... And with all Star Trek movies, I suppose, there's the kind of action-adventure formula, which is always a slightly awkward fit with Star mm. Trek, which, which is not that action packed yeah i mean there, there is action in star trek but it's not action packed in the way that like action movies are it's action, not action driven it's not like i mean for example just to talk about stuart baird's previous films executive decision the mm. film about um which as i said before is a sort of uh about this group who have to take over a plane i actually quite enjoyed that film yeah. i enjoyed it more than i was expecting to uh it is quite a romp there's a lot you know it's exciting it's thrilling it's kind of mad uh, it's, it's got one thing I noticed actually all, all three of Stuart Baird's films including this one well first of all they're all scored by Jerry Goldsmith they've yes. all got this uh, fantastic score yep. the this, this score to Executive Decision is quite similar to the score yes, to Nemesis yeah. and I think he was basically reusing material by this yeah. one which caught me off guard they also all involve uh, a, an, an aircraft or a spaceship um, smashing into things yeah. basically yeah, and just blasting everything to pieces yeah. uh, and I don't know if that's a coincidence or what but it's a, a kind of striking just, the end just, of executive decision they kind of they, they miss the runway or something and end up taking out an entire uh, yeah. airport of like light aircraft um, US Marshals the kind of beginning the, the beginning really yeah. is basically a, a, an air crash that um, you know Tommy Lee Jones and Wesley Snipes and some other people managed to survive this Mid-air decompression. Down. Yes, so yes mid-air, you know, you're right, in all three films. In all three films, it's a mid-air decompression. Being sucked out yeah. of 
holes in place. Which, so there's weird. Well, maybe I suppose this comes down to the question: like, why did they think this was the guy to do this film? Maybe these are the. Maybe someone was just like circling certain pages of the script and saying, "Oh, you know, who, you know who, who did a done, really good mid-air decompression." Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I love that idea that that's what we get you hired but uh, knowing Hollywood uh, that, that wouldn't surprise me at all it's not impossible no not impossible at all well that and also that I think the work he was doing on Tomb Raider was apparently because it was a Paramount film as well yeah that it was kind of I don't know if it was almost like a sort of like he was doing them a favour or something I think it was, he was trying to curry favour in some ways that's it and to, to r- sort of get rumors his job. Tomb Raider and I can't remember the other film. There were two. Was it Mission he, Impossible? Uh, two, two, maybe. Yes, you're correct. Right, yeah. So he recut both of them. Right. Um, uncredited. Uncredited. Yeah. Um, which again is something a bit weird that happens in in kind of certainly uh, in Hollywood mm. a lot. Is this idea that actually someone big on the job can't actually do it or mm. hasn't delivered? Yeah. Uh, our, our, our current um, Star Wars. Um, what do you call them? The Star Wars stories. Yeah. Uh, are, are, are both Rogue One and uh, Solo are a testament to the, mm. that kind of behind-the-scenes turmoil. That sometimes you've got a big film with a massive budget and a lot riding on it, and someone gets in post and can't quite pull it off. Yeah. So it's not uncommon. Uh, it still happens today. Um, so Stuart Baird did that apparently to then get the gig of directing Star Trek Nemesis. Why did he even want it? That's sort of what that, I can't help wondering. He had no interest in this franchise or this universe. He'd done these two films. I mean, Executive Decisions, I say, is, you know, pretty successful. entertaining, actually. yeah. US Marshals is, is no. pretty pants. But I don't actually think it's badly directed, necessarily. No. It's not really his fault. It's just no, a no. ropey script and a bit of a crappy film. But, yeah, you know, it's not really anything to do with him. What was he hoping... Because obviously this didn't lead to a glittering career as a, as a director. No. Was he thinking this was going to be his calling card to do more sci-fi, to do, you know, what's, what's going um, on from Stuart Baird's perspective? Because yeah, you do sort of wonder, why, why is he after this job in the first place? I wondered that as well, because you've got a guy who, um, by all accounts, has no interest in Star Trek. Mm. But he wanted this gig, so he's working with Paramount on that. And there's another weird connection. Executive Decision was originally a Paramount film. Mm-hmm. And they saw, they swapped it with Warner Brothers. Oh, right. for, I think for Forrest Gump. Wow. Really weird. Like Forrest Gump at the time was struggling and in development and no one was sure it was going to work. But they had problems with Executive Decision, so they made a weird swap. So I think Baird had this kind of relationship with Paramount that went back a bit of a way. Um, but I still don't really understand why a director, because it's difficult to look back at all any of the Star Trek films uh, and say, I mean, okay, you could say Abrams has done well out of his because he then went on and did is now doing two, will have done two of the Star Wars films. Uh, okay, fine, but any of the Star Treks, you really struggle, don't you, to just go, you know this meant the director then went on to do this. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I mean, I suppose Robert Wise, it probably didn't do him any harm. No. But, you, but Robert you, Wise you know, you're there. right. I mean, there's, a, there's always a danger of like, uh, well, not exactly typecasting, but being sort of put in that, in that box in a sense, isn't there? I, I mean, it's interesting, I suppose, because I, I wonder whether he just thought it was almost like he'd do a big film for Paramount and hopefully it would make a load of money and then they would give him something that was more in his wheelhouse. Yeah, in a way. absolutely. Uh, because as you say, he wasn't—he clearly wasn't interested in the material. 
It's not even like... I mean, Nick Meyer came into Star Trek not knowing Star Trek, mm-hmm. but what did he do? He went and watched the whole of the original series. Yeah. He immersed himself in it. There were things about it that he thought were stupid mm-hmm. and that didn't appeal to him, but he found the things that did appeal to him, the character interactions. And he also found, you know, he, he was said famously it was the hornblower side of it. He, yeah. he found a way in for him of connecting Star Trek to uh, to literature, to a kind of cultural property that he understood that he understood that he felt he understood well and that he was passionate about and he thought okay i can latch onto that and i can drag star trek a bit in that direction and therefore he managed to do that without kind of losing sight of what it was stuart baird it does sort of feel a bit like he just came in i mean it's not like he came in and turned the whole thing into a stuart baird film exactly because i'm not even sure whether there is such a thing i mean it, it it's it's more, and it's interesting if you if you listen to like his director's commentary or even watch the you know the introductions to the deleted scenes and so on. He just seems very kind of workmanlike. He's very sort of obsessed with you know which lens he used and what what the angle was of each shot and so on. It's like it's a very much a kind of um, sort of mechanical approach mm. to filmmaking. Totally uninterested in the stuff that most Star Trek fans well obviously the most Star Trek fans are interested but really that most people go to the cinema for the kind of storytelling and the yeah. drama and, and all that sort of thing it just feels and obviously he does understand that because he's not made unwatchable films no. if you know what I mean he certainly understands how to make things exciting and yeah. to ramp up tension and so on but um, he just feels like someone who's very focused on the technical side of things mm. and maybe less on the human side and I guess that would tie in with the fact that you know Famously, the next-gen cast did not get on very well with him. They sort of felt like he was almost oblivious uh, to them or who they were or what was going on with their characters or or any of that stuff. You sort of got the impression they were just sort of turning up and doing their jobs and he was doing his job and there was no relationship relationship between the two. And I suppose you can get that with TV directors insofar as you can get a TV director who comes in and they don't know the show all that well and the cast who are doing it week after week know it back to front and mm-hmm. in this case the cast who's been doing it for you know decades or whatever by this point know it back to front but I suppose there's this sort of question of with a TV director there's limited scope for them to kind of mess things up I think with a film director that there is the scope for them to in terms you know in this film say in things like the pacing we talked about in things like you know, I really don't like that June buggy sequence. Some people probably love it. I yeah. don't even like the way that the that it's uh, you, you know, like the way it's braided or whatever it is that makes it look the alien. Way it does, like it makes yeah. it look alien. And I get that that's you know, I get that as a decision. There are other sci-fi films that do that, and I think it works really well. Mm-hmm. Um, that film, what was that film with? Was it Vin Diesel? Yeah, Pitch Black. Exactly, Pitch Black. Yeah. I, I love the way that that film yeah, was shot. The way that, that worked. Yeah. Uh, it's not Star Trek. It's not something we've ever seen in Star Trek before. And yeah, yeah. I know everyone complains like lens flares aren't Star Trek and whatever. I don't really care about that. Yeah. But like, I, I feel <laughs> like it was slightly, it felt like a director saying, right, we're not going to do it the Star Trek way. We're going to do it my way. It's an alien planet. We're going to make it look what I think an alien planet looks like. Mm. And I don't care whether that's what they look like in Star Trek. Yeah. And it's that kind of attitude. It's just, you, you feel it watching it, this sort of tension between the established group of people doing their established thing. And actually there are a lot of nice moments in the film, you know, even just uh, things I appreciate this time, just sort of, you know, Beverly explaining some medical thing or Mm. like data doing it, the sort of PowerPoint presentation about what's going on or, you know, the small interactions between the crew 
which is actually a big part of the appeal of next gen and particularly when you get to like okay this is however many years on and it's great to have them all back together and we haven't mm-hmm. seen them for three or four years or something um but you're just kind of aware watching it or i was anyway certainly this time i can sort of imagine the director's eyes glazing over in those scenes and just thinking okay like you know when are we going to get through this yeah, one of course get on to yeah. the next bit that Whereas they, with bangs, basically. Whereas they were so; those moments are so integral to Star Trek. Yeah. Um, Pillar filler. You know, we talk about the pillar filler on on Next Gen. That that, that's part of what kind of made that show, gave it its heart, if you Mm. know what I mean. Um, And you know, as I say, there is some of that in this film. It's not completely devoid of it. It just feels like it's not caught anyone's interest or attention somehow. It's it's almost just there by default yeah because that's what we need and that's a Star Trek film and that's what we normally do um, which is fascinating I like what you say about TV directors because you tend to think that there are a few episodes that are directed by odd mm. you know like lone, let's call them lone directors who did like one episode of Star Trek and mm. then moved on but a lot of Star Trek is repeat offenders mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and cast yeah you know, people who understand the material keep coming back and doing it again. I think that that works really well, but it doesn't work in cinema sometimes, or rather the proof is in the pudding that we just watched. Um, yeah, a pudding that, that maybe doesn't quite rise. No, that's correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> a the, bitter, the, a <laughs> bitter, stodgy, uh, <laughs> insufficiently sweet pudding. pudding I love possibly. that idea. I don't know. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a funny one, isn't it? I do wonder, I'm sort of hoping, maybe once we have the Picard series, maybe once we finally move post-Nemesis, because this kind of idea of post-Nemesis, it's like it's such a big thing hurdle that's sort of been jump. set up. It is, exactly. It's, yeah. it's a huge hurdle to, to jump. Maybe once we get past it and it's no longer the last word somehow, it will be easier to kind mm. of swallow that, if you know what I mean. I think you're right. And maybe once we know, for example, I mean, you know, the Picard series... I mean, it, it, if they get through season one of the Picard series and don't at any point explain what happened with Data and B4, uh, I think there'll be a lot of angry yeah. people. You know, whether or not that's actually part of the story, I feel like there are certain things that they kind of have to address, at least in passing, yeah, just in order to right. exist uh, in that world. I mean, we, we were talking earlier about this um, casting breakdown, which may or yeah, may not may be or may not be right, but, you know... Um, if there's a positronic brain expert exactly. involved, hint, well, hint, exactly hinting at something which would appear to be in that direction, but also hinting at uh, uh, another um, EMH, possibly yeah, a holographic yeah. doctor. And I think the holograms, the other thing that the Picard series will have to pick up on from where Voyager went with the whole holographic rights and so on. Again, that doesn't have to be a big part of it, but we have to sort of establish some backstory as to mm. what happened after that. If you know yeah. what I mean, it's going to have to, to some extent, fill in the gaps. And maybe that will help. Maybe that will help us a little bit to kind of put um, Nemesis, Nemesis in back in context. Yeah, in absolutely. A way. But I suppose uh, there's an interesting question sort of more broadly about, you know, you mentioned the, the uh, directors who've been hired for Star Trek, you know, yeah. coming into this big franchise, uh, you know, people like Nick Meyer, who didn't know much about it, but, but managed to make it their own. People like Stuart Baird, who, you know, maybe didn't and uh, weren't interested in, in doing so but I suppose there is also a sort of broader question I mean there are a lot of uh, film franchises uh, increasingly these days and they do have to find directs and you talked about Star Wars and the kind of hiccups that have, have gone on over there I suppose there is that sort of um, 
that dilemma, isn't there, for the producers in charge of a franchise which is potentially extremely lucrative, you know, can rake in the, you know, millions of dollars over the years, um, of finding the right person for those jobs, finding the person who, and with, say, with a lot of these kind of superhero movies and so on, finding the person who often is, has a little bit of a quirk, has a little bit of a vision, has a little bit of a, you know, something more interesting about them. Then those are the ones who seem to keep getting sacked. They're like the yeah. Edgar Wrights. They're the, you, yeah. you know, the um, James Gunn, I suppose. You know, people like that who yeah. kind of bring a bit more, bit more personality to those films. Often something, whether personal or professional, whatever, it seems to break down. And that maybe with these kind of franchise movies, there is a sort of an element of fitting into the the role and kind of... I mean, maybe on one level, you know, I, I criticised you at bed for being quite workmanlike, but maybe you need someone who's a little bit going to fit that mould. But on the other hand, I suppose with Star Trek, what they often did was they had, you know, they had Jonathan Frakes. Well, Jonathan Frakes knows Star Trek inside and out because he's, he's there every Ooh. day. Do you know what I mean? Uh, not to say that Jonathan Frakes is necessarily workmanlike director. I mean, we talked about First Contact and a lot of the choices that he made that were, you know, quite creative and quite interesting. Yeah. But... I suppose it's that dilemma, you know, do you want a kind of artist or do you want a safe pair of hands? And what's the balance between those two? It's also a tricky thing to consider that Stuart Baird is a safe pair of hands. It's not to say that his other films weren't delivered on time, on budget, you know, but... So I think that's the first thing to say is, why did he want the Star Trek job is one question. Why did mm. Paramount want him for the job is also another question because executive decision was a tumultuous production where uh, Steven Seagal is in the film but is killed off early, right, because of these apparent behind-the-scenes uh, 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 bust-ups with... Oh, is that um, Yeah, apparently so. Oh, wow. So apparently... I thought it seemed quite random. He's only well, in like the first 20 minutes. But also yeah. it's the idea that... So you, you any movie that's a Steven Seagal movie, you think, well, he's going to be kind of top billing. Mm. The poster for this movie just says Kurt Russell. Mm. Okay, so Steven Seagal is nowhere to be mentioned. He's not on the opening credits. And then the first sequence you see is Steven Seagal and a team of commandos storming this thing. Now, apparently that's because... Uh, one, one reason is that Kurt Russell had heard rumours of Steven Seagal uh, being a bit violent towards uh, women and kind of had this argument about actually having to work with him. Wow. There was also um, uh, John Leguizamo, who's a rat in that film, was uh, apparently physically uh, assaulted by both Steven Seagal and Kurt Russell. Wow. Okay. Um, so, you, so that is not the sign for me of a production, you know, how how to- hands, how totally yeah. true all these things are you yeah. don't know but for these things even to exist if you delve into the production history as potential stories you know it's a Steven Seagal movie and Steven Seagal's not in it because they have to kill him off early that's weird and then you've got U.S. Marshals which Baird himself described as all as as being like running a circus they shot in sixty six different locations mm. it's not that doesn't sound managed to me that doesn't sound you know wouldn't you try if you're directing a feature film to whittle down your 66 locations yeah wouldn't you yeah. think oh god you know that does sound like a lot but maybe all you're thinking about is which camera angle you want to use and you, you know, <laughs> you're, you're, not, don't, you're the, not really thinking about the bigger picture <laughs> the logistics <laughs> yeah so exactly. how did Stuart Baird I guess because US Marshals made money mm-hmm. and because executive decision made money 
plain and simple. They probably came in on budget, mm -hmm. they came in on time, and they made money. That, to a studio, could look like a pair uh, of safe hands. Uh, watching Nemesis now, you don't really look at that, and you know it bombed at the box office. You don't think that this was a particularly safe pair of hands. Um, the other thing to say is, yes, franchise movies are struggling with the idea of original voices. Um, so you had um, Gareth Edwards on Rogue One. Um, this is actually a rumour from a friend of a friend who was on, on the shoot and said that Gareth actually uh, knew nothing about some of the bigger cameras that they were using. So you had a director who oh, had yeah. this kind of gap in his knowledge. Mm. But of course, you know, he's known for that film Monsters, right? Which mm. was made on a low budget, which was made in a kind of uh, indie way. So there was, I can't remember who it was off the top of my head, but someone shadow directed the last of that and did significant reshoots on mm. it. That was Rogue One. And then we know that Phil and Chris, uh, Lord, were removed from uh, the solo story. And mm. someone like Ron Howard's brought in, because, mm. of course, Ron Howard is a safe pair of hands. Mm -hmm. He is a director who can just get you your movie done. Doesn't yeah. matter what it is. Uh, then all of the quirks and all of the, you know, uh, things that might give you that, I hate to use this term, but that kind of auteur feel that you know you're watching someone like Wes Anderson, you know you're watching a Wes Anderson film. Um, all of those are gone. But so, the film is on time. So I guess then the big question for this one is, I mean, Jonathan Frakes, I think, has, has gone on the record and said, you know, if they'd let me direct this film, <laughs> you know, we might have made another one afterwards. Because there was a plan to make an 11th, yeah. uh, you know, Star Trek film. I mean, it wasn't, this wasn't necessarily going to be the end. This wasn't going to kill off... Uh, I mean, I know it wasn't kind of the final uh, nail in the coffin of the franchise exactly, but it, I think it was one of the things that killed off Star Trek for quite a long period of time, in a way. Um, so I suppose there's that parallel universe, there's that world that might have been. I mean, do you think if Frakes, and bearing in mind, you know, Frakes, yes, he, he directs your first contact, which, you know, I, I said I think it's a great film. He did also direct Insurrection, which I do not think is a particularly well-directed film. Um, do you think that's true? Do you think if they'd, if they'd given it to Frakes and they'd given him John Logan's maybe three-hour version of the script, would he have come up with a way of doing it that, worked that made this film a success or would it just have been a different kind of failure in the, I, in the way that arguably insurrection is a different kind of failure from from this and and, and to me this is the this is by far the worst failure because it's um because it's really bleak and depressing and kind of miserable whereas at least insurrection fails in a kind of wacky way i read uh, a few reviews um earlier I was, I was looking on rotten tomatoes all three of them mm -hmm. of uh, of baird's films um executive decision scoring the aggregate highest of 65 mm percent -hmm. interestingly but there was a roger ebert review of nemesis and he said something like and i'm completely paraphrasing but you can find it online uh, there's a scene where one spaceship rams into another and you think that if two spaceships just ram into each other they would completely obliterate each other everyone would die and that would be the end and he said in, in some ways he just felt that going through the motions of this film star trek was just tired and i have to genuinely question whether if frakes had been given that script we would have been given a very different film. There's absolutely no doubt about it. But would that film have not felt tired? Mm -hmm. I don't know. More tired than 
than it does with Baird. You, you mean, you well, mean so far as Stuart Baird is at least bringing some kind of action and some kind of like uh, no, sort of not quite. But then, like you say, insurrection didn't work either. So, on what level? As much as I have a huge amount of respect for Jonathan Frakes, on what level are we supposed to kind of believe? that if he'd been handed the reins on this film, we would have got something less tired. You know, if Baird's film, which has no regard for Star Trek at all, if Baird's film that has no regard for Star Trek can feel tired, Mm. then what would have happened if it had been put in our... uh, Jonathan Frakes could be called our Star Trek safe pair of hands. And I just really wonder... um, I'd love to see it. I would absolutely love to see it. But um, I believe uh, it might have been Roger Ebert, it might have been someone else who called it franchise fatigue. That we've we've just hit a wall here. And Star Trek did just, that was Rick Berman's line, wasn't it? Oh, it might well have been. I yeah, I always thought it was a bit of an excuse. I, yeah. I sort of thought they started using this term franchise fatigue around the point that the writing started getting lazy and repetitive. And I think really what it to, to me what franchise fatigue means is we've been making this show for 20 years and we were knackered and we yeah. couldn't cope with it anymore and, I, and we needed a break. And, you know, famously with Enterprise, uh, Brandon Braga said he wanted a year off before starting Enterprise. And they were like, no, you can do it now or get someone else to do it. So yeah. he did it then and he was exhausted mm. before they'd even started. Yeah. Know? And actually one of the big, pro- you know, actually that term franchise fatigue and, and that kind of excuse, I don't think is just used on Nemesis, but it's absolutely to try and justify some of Enterprise's laziness. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, where, where there was a real opportunity, multiple missed opportunities in Enterprise. Yeah. Similar things happen in this film where they, they, when they land on that planet and they're driving the buggy around. Now yeah. we know nothing about the planet. We know nothing about the people, you know. Yeah. Uh, now that could have been a familiar planet. That could have been yeah. uh, some aliens that we know, you know. Mm. Some Ferengi could have had the, the body, you know. And we... There's loads of stuff that could happen that, that for a Star Trek fan would be like, aha, we're back with yeah. this alien. Enterprise could have done a lot of similar stuff in those early seasons, mm. but instead invented new aliens. Mm. And you kind of, I, I was watching that always going, hmm, well, there's a missed opportunity here to go back and, and look at some of the aliens that we know and love already and where those kind of first contact moments were and what they were like. Mm. They do it with some, but, you know, other than that, it just, you know, they took Voyager to the. They, they might say that they were doing that to avoid the kind of franchise fatigue. Do you know what I mean? Oh, to possibly. Avoid yeah, yeah, yeah. Familiar ground. I mean, I don't know. Not to get too diverted into what went wrong or, or didn't go wrong with Enterprise. Yeah. But I, mean, I, I always thought it was weird when I tuned in to watch the first episode of Enterprise that the first scene has a Klingon in it. Yeah, I fair enough. thought this is going back. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know. Like. I, that could be a whole other discussion. Really, it could be. Kind of those, those decisions they made there. But I certainly think this idea of franchise fatigue, really, I expect Rick Berman was pretty fatigued. I know Brandon Braga was exhausted. I mean, John Logan and Stuart Baird, I suppose, were the two people who were likely to be the least fatigued because they yeah. hadn't, hadn't done any of this before. Um, but at the same time, for whatever reason, to me, it just feels like neither of them quite brought what was... Necessary. needed mm. at the time yeah. um, and, and you know and that's a difficult one working out what, what is needed and what's the right way to tell this story or, or what story is it that we want to tell and as we know from you know Michael Pillar's book on insurrection there's all this kind of um, 
you know, trying to please so many different masters mm. who all have a different idea of what kind of film they think it should be. Uh, you know, not least Patrick Stewart and Brent Spiner both have to be happy with it. Yeah. Um, which doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to make the right, no, not the right at all. creative decision, just um, it's what they particularly want to do. Similar things happen when, and obviously we're being, we're being fans here talking about this, this kind of stuff, but it also happens whenever something is, is made to appease fans. Mm. Or, you know, um, and I quite enjoyed, I was reading a book on TV show running recently and uh, Damon Lindelof, who did Lost, mm-hmm. uh, sort of in closing his, you know, opinion of what a showrunner has to do, he said, fans are a bit weird, you know, because on the one hand they say to you, have you got a plan? You know, have you got a plan? Do you know where you're going with this? And then on the other hand they say, are you listening to us? <laughs> yeah. and, and, and Lindelof is like, I either have a plan and I know where I'm going or I'm writing for you, but I can't be doing both. Yeah. You know, yeah. and I think similar things happen here where what did we want from Nemesis as Star Trek fans? Mm-hmm. What did a general audience want? Some kind of entertaining movie that they could just wander into? Or did the studio want a movie that made money? You know. And yet no one got what they wanted. Exactly. <laughs> yes, system. that's it. And I think that's the problem. And you see, I can sort of understand, like, I'm not the biggest fan of the Kelvin Universe films. Mm. But I can accept that they do appeal to a broad audience. Mm-hmm. They have brought in new Star Trek fans. They've they've caught people's attention. They work on a sort of very mainstream mm-hmm. level. Uh, they like they do. They they they're not idea. I'm, you know, there are things in them that work for me. I, I do quite enjoy at least two of them um, to some extent. <laughs> one of them quite a lot. But, you know, but they, they're, they're not really for me, if you know what I mean. But that's mm. fine. They're for someone else. But I think the problem with this film is that I'm not really sure. I know there are a handful of people who love this film and that's great and I'm happy for them. But I'm not really sure that it actually adequately served any of those potential groups of people yeah. that it was aiming no. to, to keep happy. No. Including uh, the people who were in it. You know, yes, <laughs> right. As a kind yeah, of fourth group. Yeah. I'm not sure that any of them, I don't know whether any of them were happy with it. Well, uh, famously, you know. and this is another bad trait if you look at the production history mm. of his films, um, Robert Downey Jr. was not in a very good place mentally at the time he shot US Marshals. Right. Uh, so he recounts that film as, as torture. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, you know, actually, he said. It, it's kind of his fault, which he does say is like, I just shouldn't have said yes to doing the film. I should yeah, have been yeah, doing yeah. a kid's film. Instead, I'm on this film yeah, yeah. being some kind of, you know, uh, gunslinging US marshal. Mm-hmm. So he was not in a very good mental place. Now, Tom Hardy, who we know has obviously had a, a, a mm-hmm. remarkably successful career uh, since, but he put his heart and soul into this role. Mm-hmm. Um, and the film bombed not bombed, bombed, but didn't perform. Uh, and he uh, went down quite a dark path afterwards, apparently, mm. uh, until 2008's uh, Bronson. It nearly killed his career. Yes, that's it. Before he did, it yeah. got going. So he and got 2002 to 2008. That's a six-year period yeah. where yeah. Tom Hardy himself recounts being uh, a bit of a drunk and not in a good headspace. And, you know, so did this film have dire consequences for us as Star Trek fans because that kind of killed the franchise? Yeah, I mean, not only was no one happy with it, you know, a handful of exceptions, obviously, acknowledged, uh, it it killed off Star Trek in the cinema until it took J.J. Abrams to come back and basically reinvent Star Trek as kind of Star Wars, essentially, to kind of of find a new way of doing it. Uh, It killed off Tom Hardy's career. 
uh, for a period of time. Stuart Baird didn't get to make another film. No, that's it. I mean, you know, you know. who did well out of this film? That's, yeah. the, that's the mystery. And was, you know, let's hope at the very least that Brent Spiner was happy because it was, I you know, so. it was his idea to begin with. And he, <laughs> he set all of this in motion to say he could have this dramatic death scene. And I don't know that he, I don't really feel that he got it. That's the thing. So I don't know that, I don't think Data does get the dramatic death scene that Spock got. It is no. quite touching. I did find it quite moving this time. There are aspects to it that I like, but I feel like it slightly fumbled it at that yeah. crucial moment. And, you know, it's interesting. I watched an interview with Marina Sirtis and she said that when she read the script and she read that Data, Data died, she burst into tears yeah. and she was really, really upset about it. Um, and she said she spoke to Jonathan Frakes and he said... Um, or maybe she spoke to Brent Spine. I think she spoke to Brent Spine and she said, you know, how could you do this? You killed Data, I'm so upset. And he said, you know, use that. You can use that in the film, basically. I'm not even sure that, that anyone watching the film gets as much of an emotional reaction from it as Marina Sirtis got, you know, yeah. in her living room, reading the script. Yeah, that reading first the script. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe, I, maybe that's really heartless of me. You know, I love Data. I don't, I don't want him to die in this film. Every time I watch it, I feel angry about it. Yeah. Uh, but it's also just the fact it doesn't feel... I don't feel angry about Spock dying in the Wrath of Khan, and it's not just because I know that he'll come back, it's because I feel like it. it's earned and it makes sense and it's kind of... Part of the narrative. It's part of it, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's you, you can't take that out of that film. I suppose that's the thing. You could take Data dying out of this film. It wouldn't actually make that big a difference to what this no. film is. Yeah. Which maybe goes back again to what you were saying, you know, what is this film about? Yeah. It, it, is there a kind of core to it or is it just a kind of a bit of a jumble of different ideas that yeah are just held together by this rather depressing sort of implosion yeah I think that sounds like a very fair summary of it I don't you know that they've they've, they've kind of taken what was a kind of extended three hour script that again in, in film terms should never also have been so we shouldn't actually have been sat down for three hours we shouldn't mm-hmm. have been Lord of the rings it that's fine um so we've taken that, and that script was apparently sacrosanct. But like you say, Spiner had to be happy. Patrick Stewart had to be happy. Um, and we've insisted on going with this director because the script couldn't be changed. And then he's come in and somehow managed to hack up the script. And what we're left with is questions, mm. you know, about what this film was meant to be. We should find out from John Logan if he's willing to publish, mm, you know, uh, that 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 full script or if anyone will let him publish it I mean yeah. well I mean now there's an interest in yeah now there's a kind of resurged interest in Star Trek yeah someone's going to want to pick up that book Um, definitely (laughs) you know and it can be um, uh, graphic novelised it could be really Mm. cool Uh, the way that um, uh, Harlan Ellison's original City on the Edge of Forever has been and that would be one way of sort of salvaging the kind of the alternate nemesis that never was. Yeah, you know, know, and then maybe the newer fans and the existing fans can all rally around this... um, I'm I'm now inventing a glorious graphic novel, (laughs) but we can all kind of rally around the graphic novel version and go, okay, I understand now where Picard was meant to be (laughs) at the end of that film, and then we can get into the new Picard series and go, cool, I get it now. Well, 
That's very nice. You found us a hopeful note to end on. <laughs> I was going to say, I mean, compared to the Wrath of Khan, what this film lacks is that sort of sense of hope at the end. It does have it just in that moment. And I do like the last scene of this film, actually. I don't like the deleted scene with the seatbelts. I think that's silly. Yeah. Uh, I like the, the the very last scene with B4 and he's singing and, you know, Picard is helping him out. And then the, that, you know... And, and I mean, you know, obviously, I mean, our show... Our, theme music for our show is, is, is the blue skies from this film so you know we, we do owe a certain debt to, to Nemesis and to that aspect of it and I think that that works very well and that because it does try in that like whatever it is you know maybe 90 seconds or something yeah. to re-inject a bit of hope a bit of Star Trek a bit of optimism a bit mm. of maybe what Star Trek represents but it's maybe just a bit too little too late yeah but I like your idea that this could be salvaged in a kind of uh, not just in an alternate universe, but in an alternate medium. Mm. Um, the material so, yeah. exists. Exactly. It might it's only be on John Logan's shelf or yeah. in a Paramount archive, but it exists. Someone could do it. Yeah. Someone could do it. Well, before we go, um, do you want to just let our listeners know, Chris, uh, where they can find you online if they want to get in touch and tell you why Nemesis is the best of the Star Trek films? Yeah, I'd absolutely love to hear it because maybe we have been a bit harsh uh, tonight. Um, so um, I'm a lecturer in film and television at the University of Greenwich uh, and you can find me on Twitter at none the less. That's N-U-N-N-the-less. And thank you so much for pleasure. joining me once again and for having me in your home this time. That's and right, for letting me see this film on a, at least a, a bigger screen than my own yeah. than my own TV at home, if, if not quite, you know, the, the cinema. Square. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, this isn't the only thing we've been talking about this week on Trek FM, so here's a listen to some of the other things you might have missed out on on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, The Orb. I'm not sure that... Our mindset has necessarily changed drastically from 1993 to 2019. Perhaps it has. I think it has a bit. But the tendency for this kind of thing to happen may have been there then, but the difference is that today we have these platforms like Twitter and Facebook that amplify it, and it is much easier for people to get together into these groups and push a certain agenda or attack an individual melodic treks but i i did actually look look back to a lot of the older stuff like the the jerry goldsmith scores and even like the james horner scores i thought those the orchestration style like i thought was really really cool to me kind of had this more classical like using only the orchestra but creating these spooky textures and stuff i i always really love that that kind of sound literary treks <laughs> and all of a sudden we see a panel that shows where Kirk and Crisp are. I want to call her Crispy for a second. <laughs> There's uh, Spock and Crisp, I think, right? Okay. That, uh, yeah, Spock and Crisp. I love that cereal. And <laughs> <laughs> I had some Kellogg's Spock and Crisp the other day. Warp 5. To, to Yeah, you don't give them the tools they need moving forward. It's great to give someone their freedom, but you have to then stay there and help them to get to the next step so that they don't need you anymore to do that. That was the problem with the episode. And I think that plays a big role in not just this episode, but society in general. We've done that a lot in other countries, and we've gone and knocked out regimes and you know whatever, and then we don't do anything for the people there, so we're back in the same boat or a worse boat than we were when we started. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. 
Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favourite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad or Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place is to join the larger conversation on the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type in Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Primitive Culture. That'll come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. Primitive Culture is brought to you by Duncan Barrett and Clara Cook. You can find Duncan Barrett on Twitter at Barrett's Books. You can find Clara on Twitter at Clara Jean MC. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trek.fm. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash trek.fm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits and more. Available through our special patrons website. Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us, and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd like to take this opportunity to thank our associate producers here at Primitive Culture, Tony Black and Amy Nelson. Tony was one of the founders of this show, and we still keep him in the loop about what we're doing. You can find him on Twitter at at AJBlackWriter and online, hosting about a dozen other podcasts on everything from the X-Files to classic cinema. Amy is the host of two shows on the Trek FM network, Earl Grey and The Edge, and you can find her online on Twitter at at Miss Amy Nelson. You're blended all right.